Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Elizabeth Weingarten, head of Behavioral Science Insights at Torch, where she works closely with the Behavioral Science team to identify and share what the company is learning about the science of leadership development. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So let's start off with learning a little bit about how you got your start in behavioral science and helping the study of leadership development. Yeah, great question. Um, So my story really starts with my parents, who are both journalists. I come from this family of journalists. And I came from a family where every night at the dinner table, my father would say, do something else besides journalism, because this was a time when journalism was really undergoing a lot of changes. And I think he wanted me to find something that had more job security. But kind of unfortunately for him, journalism was really my passion growing up. I was editor of the newspaper um, and found my way into journalism school. And And I think a big part of that, and this is kind of the thread that really goes through my whole career, is I'm fascinated by people um, and understanding why do people do what they do? How do we just more deeply understand motivations and behavior? And so from journalism school, I had a more traditional kind of journalism career at first. I worked um, at The Atlantic, and then I worked at Slate. And I found myself staying really interested in journalism and storytelling and kind of narrative, but also really deepening my interest in other subject areas. So for instance, I got really, really interested in global gender equality issues. And part of that was I got a chance to live and work in Doha, Qatar for several months and became really, really interested in that subject while I was there. So from there, I went to a think tank where suddenly I was kind of combining journalism with this kind of policy analysis. So I was starting to do a lot of analysis and research of global gender issues. And while I was doing all of this work, a big intention of mine was how can we kind of change the hearts and minds of people inside workplaces and really kind of get people to embrace gender equality um, in all parts of their life. And I was really doing that through this journalism and research work. But what happened while I was on this path, and Douglas, I'm curious if you've had this experience too, is that I read a book that totally changed my life. It just kind of blew up my worldview. And that book was uh, What Works by Iris Benet. And she is a behavioral economist at Harvard. At the time that I read it, I had no idea what behavioral economics really was. And I read the book, and it was this kind of book that really places 
the gender equality work that I was doing um, alongside this whole new way for me of viewing the world, which was from this place of, of behavioral science insights and understanding fundamentally that the systems and the environments and the structures that we surround ourselves with often have just as much influence on our behaviors every day than any kind of innate trait that we might have. So I got really excited about this space because all of a sudden it was this different way to approach the problems that I had been curious about as a journalist. And from there really pivoted my career. Um, I started working at the Behavioral Scientist um, magazine as the managing editor, and then started working at a um, consulting firm called Ideas42, which um, really focuses on doing applied behavioral science um, for social good. And the other big thread across my career, I mentioned that kind of interest in humans and why we do what we do. But the second big thread was really diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really thinking about that in, in the workplace. And that is really a big part of what led me to where I currently am um, at Torch. And at Torch, I'm the head of behavioral science insights. And really, that means that I get to work with our behavioral science and our marketing teams and our sales teams and lots of other teams. It's very cross-functional. And start to identify what are the most interesting things that we're learning from our um, software platform. And we focus on leadership development, coaching, mentoring, and collaborative learning. And then really translate that into content that's going to be compelling to people. So it's this cool marriage of the things that I've loved to do throughout my career um, in service of a goal that is, is really powerful to me, which is how do we help everybody um, at work really reach their, their full potential as leaders. You know, it's not uncommon for folks that come on the podcast to have this thread of experiences that kind of build on top of each other. And and usually that woven within that experience is a deep interest in people. And I hear that shining through quite a bit, you know, whether it's in the early days as a journalist, that there was definitely an interest there around, you know, people and, and the experiences that people have to deal with and live with, right? Like there's some serious stuff there. And I think it's really, really quite cool that, you know, you stumbled into this discipline, the science that helped, you know, open up a whole new chapter for you. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, you know, when you're when you're in it, when you're kind of in your career path, so to speak, it's not always clear um, what the next step is going to be and how things are leading to the next thing. But my North Star has always really been my curiosity. So I try to listen to times when I just get so interested in a subject um, and I start reading about it all the time. I think that's, for me, has always been a really important indicator of a place to, to dig in um, and think about, well, how do I make this more um, a part of my, my work day to day? Yeah, absolutely. And these moments of exploration can be so powerful to folks. I'm just thinking about the listeners that might be in those moments in their career where they're like, I don't know what's next. And you know, the exploration and just staying so curious, it's just such a powerful thing. It is. And I, I appreciate you talking about it with that framing, because I think that it can also feel really overwhelming. And I think particularly in a broader context of uncertainty, like we're in right now. But, you know, I think behavioral science really teaches us about the power of framing and both kind of in the in the external world, um, how somebody frames a question to us, but of course, how we're framing questions ourselves um, and kind of priming yourself to be in that more exploratory mindset, um, I think is a powerful way to, to really think about your next step and take, you know, really find agency in finding what that is for you. You know, that reminds me of something that comes up quite often when we're training facilitators and uh, something that's been really powerful 
way to look at things for myself that I, something I've found really powerful is understanding that these framings are going to be different for everyone. You know, even if I prompt the room, everyone's going to respond with their own perspective, their own point of view. And whether that's a different thought pattern or a different mindset, or, you know, someone might be thinking in hierarchies, someone else might be thinking linearly, someone else might be thinking in, in like roller coasters or whatever, right? And if we assume everyone's thinking the same, that can really stifle our ability to connect. Absolutely. And that's what's so cool about people, right? And I think bringing people together is those moments of like, oh, I was thinking about it in this way. And oh, your lived experience means you're thinking about it in this totally different way. And how exciting as a facilitator to kind of be in those moments where your assumptions are challenged or where all of a sudden you have this whole new metaphor to to view something in the world. So often that can be the root of challenges. You know, when people are disagreeing, it could be just those elements at play. And how simple is it to like just break that apart, right? It's not anything big. It's not, this person's not wrong. That person's not wrong. It's just something that's not congruent about the communications. Definitely. And I think that in our increasingly virtual world, sometimes it can be really challenging to pick up on those disconnects and where they're coming from, uh, because it often takes kind of a pause, right? And kind of a slowness and asking that other person questions and really trying to more deeply understand, which a lot of times the platforms that we're part of are not conducive to that type of slowness. They're instead trying to kind of increase the pace of our interactions. And this relates back to one of my favorite topics, and I know you talk about this a lot too, is just the power of asking questions, right? And I think in those moments when you feel that disconnect and when you're feeling kind of at loggerheads with someone else, taking that step back and really saying, Huh, this is interesting. If I if I try to give that person the benefit of the doubt and think to myself, well, this person is just as complex of a human as me. They probably are motivated by a lot of the same things as me. There are a lot of similarities there. How can I understand where they're coming from? What am I not asking? What am I missing? And I love when this is a this is a question that I've seen people ask that I've tried to ask myself too is when you're maybe repeating back to somebody what you think they're trying to say or get at in that kind of active listening modality, also asking them, what am I missing here, right? Like, what am I not understanding about your perspective? That's really fantastic. And another one that I love is, uh, tell me more about that. Yes, yes. I love the the comment question. And just the, I think something that you learn as a journalist, and I imagine too as a facilitator, is the power sometimes of not saying anything, right? And just kind of letting <laughs> letting it come out, which can be really hard. No doubt. The silence, man. It's like crippling. When you're first starting, it's so, well, I know when I was first starting, it was like so scary. You know, you, you feel like you're there to like fill up space and it's, getting out of the way is what allows the beauty to creep in. Definitely. It's funny how afraid we can become of silence, right? Whether it's in a facilitation moment, or I think about for myself, one of the conversational crutches that I have just in my personal relationships is feeling like I need to fill in silences, or I like I need to always have a question to ask or kind of run the conversation sometimes like an interview. And I don't feel that way with everybody, but um, I remember back when I was dating, um, that was a thing that I always felt like I had to 
keep the conversation on the rails. And, you know, it's just been interesting to, to me to recognize that deep fear of like, well, what happens if there's silence? Nobody, you know, it, nobody's really harmed, but it feels like this big, scary thing. You know, the silence is similar to what you were saying earlier about the slowness, because in order to create slowness, we had to embrace silence and and allow things to, you know, just to move at a different pace. And a lot of the advice we were given going into the pandemic, you know, shorten meetings to 30 minutes, actually worked against us in this notion of slowness, because now instead of having six meetings a day, we've got 12 meetings a day, because now we've got more slots rather than embracing the opportunity to have some like async time and slow down. So I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and, and maybe even some tactics you've seen around embracing that slowness. Yeah, I think it's really tough because I think when you get into that 30-minute Zoom meeting, people are so laser-focused on the agenda, what has to happen. Um, and I can get like that too, um, especially when you have all those meetings stacked on top of each other. And, you know, I think for many of us, Zoom fatigue is still real. We're probably not trying to add more virtual time. But what I've found is helpful, at least in the context of some meetings, and at least maybe, you know, one or two meetings a week, is just having that kind of five-minute buffer at the beginning to whether it's checking in or asking somebody a question that maybe brings a little bit of joy and kind of delight into the conversation. So I'll say that the one question that I've been asking people recently that has really been fun is, tell me about a poster that was on your wall when you were a kid. Mm. And so, you know, this, this, it, it doesn't necessarily get to the kind of how do we slow everything down, but I think what it does get to is how do we, how do we build in more moments for human connection and for deepening relationships every day, which I think, you know, when we think about why the pace of things can feel like it's burning us out, I think a big part of that, or at least a big part of that for me is that I'm not feeling connected or I'm not feeling like things are meaningful um, because I'm just speeding through my to-do list. But when I can build in time for having some of those connections, all of a sudden I feel, I feel a lot better and I feel, you know, a lot better about my work in particular. Absolutely. Gallup released the 12 questions, right, around these are like indicators of people who are likely to leave. If you really look at it and think about it, it was about the relationships people had at work, how they related to coworkers, how they thought about their coworkers, and how they related to the work and the job they had to do. And so these the relationships matter for, you know, team health. Absolutely. They matter for team health. They also, you know, what we've found that I think is really interesting is that they really matter for learning and growing as people. So when I first joined Torch, I actually learned about some really interesting research, which is that people had been studying for many decades psychotherapy practices and what makes certain types of therapy more effective than other types. And what they found um, looking across, you know, lots of different studies and lots of different types is that beyond any specific methodology or, or strategy, it's really your relationship, what's called the relationship alliance, that has the greatest power to really supercharge growth and, and behavior change. So, and that's not just, you know, inside these types of therapeutic relationships, but, but really more broadly. And I think 
you know, for me at least, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. I mean, I think about the times in my life that I've grown or changed the most, and it hasn't necessarily been because I watched some like online training or TED Talk, right? Um, Not to say that those resources aren't really valuable, because they are, but in terms of that like really kind of life-changing growth, a lot of times that has come in the context of that trusted relationship. So whether it's a mentor or a coach or a manager or, you know, um, a, a partner, you know, anything, anything like that. I love this idea that um, these trusted partners can bring the best out of us or, or even shine a light on things that, um, you know, might be an epiphany that was waiting that we we just wouldn't have seen otherwise. And it reminds me of the work that um, I think Rob Cross and Peter Gray were doing around network analysis and the importance of positivity in our networks. And I think this like aligns really nicely with what you're talking about with the relationships, right? We have to have this notion of positivity that's floating around the organization. And um, the relationships that we're building helps us tap into that positive energy and that reinforcement. Yeah, and this also reminds me there's a whole literature on something called high-quality connections at work and the powerful role that they can play in our lives. Um, And these are short-term interactions, um, so a little bit different than those longer-term kind of coach or mentor relationships. But I thought about them from that kind of positivity standpoint because these are interactions that really kind of uplift us um, during the day or during the week because they are really around this point of the other person expressing genuine concern for how we are and who we are. So it's really about showing that this person cares about us, checking in, seeing how we're doing. So it's that person that checks in with you right after a tough meeting to see how you're holding up, or they know that your parent just went through surgery. And so they're they're asking to see how it was. But I know those little elements of, of kind of positive interaction, even if it's not a kind of significant long-term relationship, really can have a, a profound impact on our well-being, on our engagement, on our productivity, all sorts of things in the workplace. And you mentioned earlier about how relationships have an impact on how we learn and grow. And that resonated with me just in, you know, the minimal research I've been able to do in learning science and just knowing about, you know, the conditions by which we're more apt to be in a good state of mind to learn, right? There are conditions where we might be able to learn and and conditions where it's more difficult to learn. When we have positive relationships and encouragement and nourishment, we're going to be more open because we're not in a fight and flight kind of mode, you know, we're more open to what the future might offer us. And so I'd love to hear more about your thoughts there. Cause that, when you said that, I was like, of course, this really resonates. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there are so many factors that, that come into play when it comes to that kind of readiness to learn and grow, as you described. Um, there are three that I would probably point to as far as the things that we know are are really powerful, especially in that context of like a coaching or mentoring relationship. And one is when relationships can create environments of psychological safety. And so what this often means, of course, is that you really feel comfortable being vulnerable with that person and telling the other person what it is that you really can't figure out or what you're really struggling with, Mm -hmm. which means that you actually get to the heart of what you want to learn or what you want to change versus just kind of operating at that surface level. And to me, a big part of that is really creating spaces where we can be authentic with each other and communicate with empathetic understanding. So 
that means is actively trying to understand the thoughts and feelings of people around you, but also knowing to our topic earlier when when to ask questions versus when to assume that you know um, what someone else might be feeling. The second piece is around structure, and that is the kind of how, when, where, and why you need to change or learn. And this is something that you don't necessarily always need a person, but that a person can really help guide you through and kind of create that structure, not only to understand what your overall trajectory might look like, but but also um, setting that time and space to, to have that experience with somebody. And then that leads into the third piece of this, um, which I think is really important, which is accountability. And so, you know, when you create a relationship with somebody, they can hold you accountable for following through on your promises or the things that you've said that you want to learn or the ways that you want to grow and change. So all of these factors, I think, really powerfully influence whether or not we we change our behaviors um, at the end of the day. And then I think, you know, uh, our, our correspond with that kind of learning and growth. Um, but I'm curious how those factors um, connect to the factors that you've learned are, are really important in, in learning. You know, I'll say this. When you were saying those things, it immediately brought me back to any of the times I've been mentoring for, there's a couple of incubators here in Austin that I work with. And I got to the point where I had enough of just hearing startups pitch me on their ideas. It's like, I'm not here to invest in you. Like I'm here to for this like mentor office hour and you're wasting your time with this whole pitch. Like, tell me what's wrong. Tell me where you're yeah. stuck. And the thing is, is it requires a lot of trust, you know, to open up and talk about those things. And so I started to, out of the gate, when we were doing the informal, just like, hey, nice to meet you. As I was introducing myself, I would tell them, hey, you know, you're going to get the most out of this session if you tell me what's going on or you're stuck, how I can help you. If we just talk about your company, it might be fun to talk about your company. I might enjoy it. I might learn something, but it's not going to help you. And that does require a lot of trust for people to be vulnerable, but gosh, does it really open the door for them to be a better learner for themselves and to even be exposed to the possibility to the right thing. I can't individualize the experience unless I really know what's going on, right? And so I think that shows up a ton in work too, right? And can we anticipate those moments when we need to tell people, hey, lay it at my feet. It's going to be okay. Definitely. And I think, you know, what that makes me think of too is even beyond the learning opportunity and potential there is just the opportunity to create a stronger relationship, right? Mm. Like we know that reciprocal vulnerability is a really key part of building any type of relationship. So you say something about a mistake that you've made or something you don't know. I want to tell you something about something I don't know or a mistake I've made. And all of a sudden, we feel a lot closer to each other, right? And I think that's that's incredibly powerful. So all of a sudden, you've converted kind of maybe like a one-time, one-off thing where everybody's following a script and we're all like, oh, okay, I have to paint myself and everything in this light, but actually I'm feeling this way and everything is kind of in shambles to this moment of, as you put it, kind of authenticity and and and, and uh, reciprocal vulnerability and maybe built a strong relationship for the future. I love that notion of modeling the failure or modeling the vulnerability, but in sharing stories of failure is really powerful because I think so often it can, you know, especially if, you're got, if you've gotten asked to come in as this authority figure or share something 
so easy to fall into like, well, I got to, I got to prove to them why I should be here. And it can be, I don't know. I feel like that alienates more, right? It puts you on the pedestal or, you know, or me on the pedestal and then it just separates and isolates. I think that's totally right. And I should say too, that, you know, I completely understand it as a kind of a coping mechanism for certain populations of people that have historically been and to this day are still underestimated, right? And Mm. are kind of feel the pressure to really showcase your expertise all the time because you are getting more scrutiny, whether it's women or people of color, really facing double standards in how they might be in the world. That's really tough. And so I think there's, you know, all of that added pressure on folks to really express that they've got it all under control and they can handle everything. But there's, there's also, you know, I think if you can do this and kind of find space to do this, there's so much to be learned when you put away that expert hat. Uh, and and I think that's something that, that I really struggle with, and particularly when I'm leading a webinar or when I'm in a situation where I feel like, okay, well, I have to know the answers to all these questions. And then sometimes you kind of reflect and think about it, and some of the questions that are being asked aren't actually answerable, you know, or they're, they're really big. And so you put a lot of pressure on yourself to be the all-knowing person when actually you could learn and grow more if you pose that question back to your audience, um, if you are in person, or if you acknowledge, you know what, that's a great question. I don't really know. I'm going to have to do more more research on that. So I always really admire that. I'm in a leader that can come out and say that. Yeah, I, once, I had a friend tell me that that was the difference between a knowing leader and a learning leader. Oh, interesting. I love that distinction. Yeah. And it's like I had a friend who has a different friend. He was the CTO of another company here in Austin. And he did this thing that was like really, really cool. Whenever his team would ask him, because inevitably, you know, the team is like, oh, let's go see what the boss thinks. His answer would almost always be, I don't know, what do you think? I love that. And that kind of gets to this thing that we hear about and think about a lot, which is how do you create coaching cultures inside organizations? Because it's one thing to have, you know, a capital C coach that's working with you. And it's another thing to really build an organization and a culture so that folks are really, you know, modeling some of those behaviors that we associate with with great coaching. And one of them is question asking and and not assuming um, that you always have the answers and really trying to help the folks who you work with and who work for you come to the right answers themselves. And oftentimes, maybe those answers are totally different than the ones that that you thought were the right ones. But then, again, the bonus is that you learn and you've also maybe witnessed that moment of epiphany for another person. Yeah, it's like just a totally different model and I think it can be so powerful. But to your point, whether there are massive social structures in place that are causing it or even just our own fragile egos, the imposter syndrome is real. Even if you have all the privilege in the world, it can still be there. But certainly the folks that don't have it had to fight even harder. And it's a big challenge. And, you know, the thing that was emerging for me as we were talking, it's like when I first started doing public speaking, I was given the advice, never introduce yourself, never talk about yourself when you get on stage. Someone should be doing that for you. It's like someone should be introducing you. You just walk on the stage and start. Like, tell your story, like, just literally, like, 
you know, walk on the stage and say, so one time when I was in the second grade, you know, like it's so much more powerful. And so I wonder if there's some, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, is there a way that we can use our relationships and work, um, use our bosses, use our peers to help with that credibility building so we can just show up in the authentic ways without having to justify our, our existence? Yeah, I think, you know, what that makes me think of is sponsorship. And as a incredibly powerful lever, especially for underrepresented populations, and sometimes sponsorship can kind of emerge from great mentorship relationships, great managerial relationships. But that's really when somebody is, they're not just mentoring you, but they're taking it upon themselves to suggest you for stretch assignments, or they're they're talking about you in meetings when you're not there, right? They're saying, hey, did you, you know, see the great work? that Douglas did on this project. Um, We really should promote him or, you know, we really think that this person has a lot of potential inside the organization. So sponsorship in particular, you know, I think is, is an even more powerful, you know, model in terms of helping people from backgrounds that are historically marginalized or folks that are maybe more likely to face both that imposter syndrome and also that um, added scrutiny of being somebody from um, one of those populations, that's a thing that that can have huge and powerful impacts in the workplace. I love that for a couple of reasons. It just gave me vocabulary that helps explain something I've seen happen before. Also, you can look at it from both directions. One being if you're feeling the need to step up and beyond whatever like threshold there is there, seeking out the sponsor and creating those relationships and asking people to help you really powerful because then you can just concentrate on your good work and then they're helping amplify. It's like all goodness. And then the flip side of that, if you seek out folks to sponsor, that's so much better than even tooting your own horn because when people see you advocating for others, they're going to have so much respect for you. hundred percent. I mean, I think That's actually something that I really appreciate about where I work now at Torch is there's this culture of recognition and calling people out for their great work. And so you see leaders doing it all the time, you know, just really making sure that everybody is identified for the work that they've done on a particular project Um, and even folks that work behind the scenes on something. And I think that recognition is such a powerful component of having a healthy workplace culture. It's something that we all want at the end of the day, right? Like we want to be kind of recognized for our work. But, you know, it's also something that I think getting back to that imposter syndrome, if you're a leader who is feeling insecure about your own leadership, maybe you think that the way to solve for that is by broadcasting your own accomplishments. But Actually, you know, that's not going to be the way that you really find that um, stability as a, as a leader. It's really going to come more from that place of holding other people up and really kind of expanding the, the kind of pie, so to speak. Yeah, I love that. It also echoes <laughs> so many parallels to this. The same mentor that was giving me that speaking advice they said, never be the hero in your own talk. Oh, interesting. And, you know, I, I saw this really well done at our conference this year, actually. You know, I'll have to talk to you about maybe coming out in February. This year, we had Stephen Tomlinson talk. And all the wise advice that he was giving, he was attributing to his grandmother. And I'm sure she had some really great things to say. These are things that I've heard him tell me just in passing, like little nuggets he's thought about. And he was giving his grandmother all the credit for all of them. And it's such, it was so moving and powerful that like, you just got to love him for it, you know? 
Oh, I love that. I mean, we tend to gravitate towards people more that can really showcase that playful self-deprecation, right? Like you don't want anybody to be too negative, but but to kind of share, I think going back to the relationships piece, we like to hear about people that can understand and see and acknowledge all of the relationships that have formed them. Because it reminds us, I think, of all the relationships that have formed us. And that's so emotionally powerful. I mean, just hearing you say that, I'm thinking about my own grandmother, right? And all of the ways that she's shaped me. And I think the more that we can bring in our communities and our networks into these knowledge-sharing spaces, the more we engage our audiences and kind of get them thinking about those experiences in, in their own life. Yeah. And so I wanted to shift gears a little bit here because there's one thing that you mentioned in our pre-show chat that I thought I wanted to hit on before we run out of time, which is going to happen real soon because we're having fun talking. It was this notion of redefining leadership and especially in this time of uncertainty. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think What's really interesting first uh, when we talk about redefining leadership is really going back to the history of when we started defining leadership in the first place, right? So just very briefly, um, one of the things that always sticks out to me is that there was this psychologist in the 1950s, um, and his name was Raymond Cattell, and he was one of the first people to publish research that really said, here are the traits that leaders need to have. Um, and he you know, talked about things like enthusiasm, charisma, dominance. But what's interesting about that is we've really clung to this idea that there is a personality that you have to have, right, to be a great leader. And this is something I've talked a lot about with Linda Ginzel, who is a leadership professor at the University of Chicago. Um, and she wrote a book called Choosing Leadership. And it's a great book. She really tries to move the focus away from um, innate traits of leadership to leadership behaviors. And really powerfully, I think, too, away from the noun leader and towards the verb to lead. So it's really less about leadership as a, as a label and more about leadership as action or, or a series of actions. And I think that that way of thinking about leadership is really important today to the moment that we're in. And I think it's a moment where all of us are facing a lot of uncertainty, different levels of uncertainty. This isn't going away anytime soon. And I think, you know, embedded in the question of, of redefining leadership is this question of what do we need from our leaders right now? But a big part of that question, and um, this gets to kind of what Linda talks about a lot, is what do we need from ourselves? Mm. How do we all need to grow to respond to this moment? Because ultimately, often what we're looking for from someone else, we can find inside ourselves. And if we accept the idea that all of us can lead and can really learn some of these leadership behaviors, we can kind of start to answer both of those questions at once. And I think the final thing I'll say is that at Torch, we've identified basically nine behavioral skills um, through whole literature review and other kind of statistical analysis that the most effective leaders have um, and really are strong in. So these include things like authenticity or compassion, perceptiveness, receptiveness, but they're really not based in that personality. They're based in um, the behaviors that we can we can learn. And, and this idea, you know, growth mindset around all of this too, that leadership is not an innate thing, but a thing that you can grow into. I think that's so important to come back to a word we used at the beginning, just reframe what leadership is. And it's funny because I had someone respond to my newsletter uh, the other week and they were like, 
You talk about leadership a lot. And nowadays, I don't know if it's about leadership or people following leaders anymore. And I thought for a second, like, oh, wow. Like, And basically, my response to them was something very similar to what you were just saying. You know, we have to think about behaviors and we have to think about how everyone can be a leader and how you can show up in these ways that allow us to unlock our own potential. And I truly, truly believe it starts with the self because we can't expect others to change if we don't change first. I totally agree with that. And I think we run into real problems when we expect other people to fill some hole in ourselves. When we start out with the assumption that we don't know what to do, we don't have enough inside of ourselves, we need somebody else to to kind of step in and fill that void. I think it's we can absolutely be inspired by the models of people. I think we can absolutely kind of lean on relationships in order to grow. But I agree that it has to start with that acknowledgement of the role that you play and just a deepening of your own of your own self-awareness. All right. Well, we're going to have to end at some point. And so I want to just uh, take a moment to allow you to leave our listeners with a final thought. So final thought, always difficult to do this after so many interesting threads here. But I would say, especially during this moment that we're in, my encouragement to everybody would be to think about small ways that you can build in more moments of genuine connection in your life, especially in the workplace. In behavioral science, we talk a lot about kind of those small changes um, that can really have an outsized impact in our lives. And I think that that is one of them, just kind of building in, whether it's just a question that you ask at the beginning of a meeting, or maybe it's something you know bigger than that. But that's my, that's my final thought and, uh, and encouragement to everybody. Awesome, human connection, so important. And thanks for the book recommendations. Always love it when people mention books. We'll put those in the show notes so people can find them. And Elizabeth, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I can tell that we could go for hours, but again, you know, these have to have to be about 45 minutes long or so. So we will have to save the rest to another time. And uh, hopefully there will be another time. And again, just a pleasure chatting. You too. So much fun. Agreed. We could We could keep going for a long time. So thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.